The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Eat Your Terrarium edition. It's Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. On today's show, Black Klansman is the latest from writer-director Spike Lee, the peerless dean, of course, of black filmmaking in America. It tells the improbably based on a true story of a black undercover cop in Colorado who in the 1970s infiltrated the KKK. And then Making It is the latest competition show. This one comes with a twist. I think it's a twist. I don't really watch these things. It's a quirky, craft-based competition show hosted by Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler, of course, the beloveds from Parks and Rec. And finally, Brazil's oldest and most important museum, the largest natural history uh, museum in Latin America, has burned to the ground, taking what is believed to be almost all of its collection with it. We discuss what is really an incalculable loss, as I understand it, almost an existential loss with Mauricio Santoro, uh, head of the Department of International Relations at the State University of Rio de Janeiro. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Uh, Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Uh, And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. So listen, Julia, first of all, I want to thank you very, very, very much. And I, I think you know why. I do not know why. (laughs) <laughs> what have I ever done for you? I mean, I just thought, okay, so I should say to our listenership that I'm I'm in Bennington, Vermont, and I'm here uh, opening up Maiden Voyage of the Slate podcast, uh, Bennington Bureau. And I thought having a bunch of craftspeople build uh, the hull of a ship in order to smash a champagne bottle against the side of it uh, upon my arrival was it was a little OTT, but I really appreciated it. Steve's gone rogue. I don't know what he's talking about. What Bennington Bureau? What do you mean, sir? Get thee back to Ghent. It's going to it's going to nudge Slate slightly into the red, but by no more than the upper six figures. But I am we are we're starting at Bennington. I'm teaching at Bennington in the fall. So they built from the ground up. They built this beautiful uh, studio for me. Great. Thanks, Bennington. (laughs) All right. Ron Stallworth is a black officer in an all-white police force. He's the subject of racist, passive aggression, sometimes aggression, aggression, and is sent to spy on the black power movement. But he has different ideas. One day, he reaches out to the local chapter of the KKK, of the Klan, and strikes up a friendship with its poobah and decides to pursue it further, to dig deeper. The problem is, of course, he's black. So he enlists his colleague Flip Zimmerman, a Jewish cop, to be his in-person self. What follows is a lot of 70s nostalgia, a lot of Spike Lee uh, in equal parts rage and contemplation, a lot of divided consciousness. The film stars John David Washington as Stallworth, Adam Driver as his white body double, and Topher Grace as David Duke, uh, Grand Wizard of the Klan and Incorrigible Worm. Let's listen to a clip. I didn't want to say what trap, but that pecker would have had a gun in my face. And he was an ass hair away from pulling the trigger. And he didn't. But he could have. And then I would have been dead. For what? Stopping some jerk-offs from playing dress-up? Flip, it's intel. Well, I'm not risking my life to prevent some rednecks from lighting a couple sticks on fire. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie hot dog white boy. Hmm. That's what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. 
Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the clan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my fucking business. It's our business. I'm going to get you your membership card so you can go to the cross burning and get in oh, deeper okay. with these guys. Right, partner? Uh, Dana, this movie, I think, if I'm correct, is being greeted uh, as something of a comeback for Lee. The relevance is obvious of the story is obvious to the present moment. Was it a little too obvious? What do you think? Oh, man, lots to say about this movie. I have conflicted reactions to it. For one thing, that narrative in the press of this being the big Spike Lee comeback seems to me kind of insulting to the fact that Spike Lee has been making things nonstop, making a movie pretty much every couple years for his entire career. And if he's dipped at all below the public consciousness, it's because he's done things that are less high profile, like this movie called Red Hook Summer that was shot almost entirely on digital video and was this very interesting low budget thing with unprofessional actors. Anyway, I mean, he's he's still doing stuff. It's not as if he's been, you know, desperately longing for a comeback for the past 10 years or however long since people have been. Right. We just talked about his television project. She's got to have it like. 12 months ago, right, right? Exactly. He's been doing TV. He's, he's doing producing other people's projects, just involved in, in film all over the place. So so I reject that notion to begin with. Um, but I do see that people are maybe seeing this as a return to sort of, you know, a, the re- return to form of a certain big Hollywood Spike Lee. So, OK, starting from there, is, is it a good movie or not? I mean, it's thoroughly enjoyable to watch. It's an incredible story. We should talk about the extent to which the story is true to the actual facts of Ron Stallworth's story or not. But as constructed by Spike Lee, it's it's got that great relationship that you hear in that scene between the Adam Driver character, the white Jewish cop who's being somewhat reluctantly forced to act as the body double for Ron Stallworth, who is essentially catfishing, right? He's 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 convincing David Duke and other clan members on the phone that he is a white guy who wants to infiltrate their organization. And then when they need an actual body to show up and get the card and get fitted for a hood, it's Adam Driver who does it. So that in itself is a great premise for a movie. And uh, and everything involving that relationship, I thought, was, was really well done. I guess the question about this movie is, which of the two kinds of Spike Lee movies is it? I mean, to me, it's sort of like there are the Spike Lee movies that are really... Um, and this is not even a value comparison right now, but this is a stylistic comparison. There's sort of the solid Hollywood storytelling movies, right, in which I would put something like uh, Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X or um, Inside Man or 25th Hour, movies that are, you know, pretty much a coherent story, sometimes true, sometimes based on truth, sometimes not, but sort of told straight through. And then there are the ones that are kind of crazy collages of ideas, like Bamboozled is the one that first jumps to mind. But there's many others. In fact, that TV show feels a little bit like crazy heaping together of different ideas and storylines with almost like a deliberate indiscipline, which is a thing that that Spike Lee Mm. sort of wears on his sleeve. Like, I want to do this this way. I want to express my ideas sometimes in a direct and even propagandistic way instead of subtly cloaking them in story. And this movie has some of both. For large, large portions, it really is a straight story, really well told, good characters, suspense as to what's going to happen to, you know, all these people putting themselves in potentially dangerous situations. And then there's these moments, specifically at the beginning and the the end, this almost frame story, except it's not a story, this frame device of having all kinds of crazy multimedia intertextual things happen, right? So we actually, the very first thing you see on screen in this movie is a shot from Gone with the Wind, a pretty long scene from Gone with the Wind. Which which I've never seen. You've never seen Gone with the Wind? No. For some reason, I decided at some point that I should only ever see it on a big screen, and I never saw it. (laughs) You you should see it on a big screen, and you should see it. I'm just, I'm puzzled. Look, it's just the latest in the litany of a big obvious 
previous movies I should have seen that I haven't seen. Um, All right. In that case, I approve of the opening insofar as it made Julia Turner be exposed to some of Gone with the Wind. Julia, I have to ask, have you ever seen the sky or, or grass? Have you seen grass? Pavement? What about pavement? I'm just surprised you could grow up in America without somehow being forced to see Gone with the Wind, at least in part, at some point. But so, no, my point being, and then after that, we suddenly see Alec Baldwin playing this 50s-style um, narrator of a documentary, a really racist documentary, um, which never comes back again. You never see Alec Baldwin again, but you have this sort of scene of him flubbing his lines as he's trying to do this voiceover for a for a piece of racist propaganda, basically. But, but the point is, yeah, this has a bunch of bricolage and grabbing things from here and there and stitching them together in that spikely way. And then at the center of that is this fairly conventional story. So how you react to it will respond to which of those two spikely styles you like and whether or not you think they can exist together. Yeah, I think you're totally right to identify that there's sort of two different movies happening here. There's there's one, the, the kind of bricolage movie that seems to be about how the media understands and perpetuates messages of racism and hate and then the narrower movie about like kind of a great period movie I mean first of all can I just say it's wonderful to see Spike Lee to see Spike Lee's camera uh, roaming over red rocks and like the classic landscapes of the American West and in Colorado Springs a very not Brooklyn not New York set of tableaus and it's appealing to see his craft in new terrain and tackling these these interesting questions. I wasn't sure I thought that the central story and the what do we do with hate in America and how do we think about the messages of hate in America stories actually intertwined to produce something greater than the sum of the parts. And there are moments where the nods to the present moment and the fact that Trump has been elected based on exploiting the same ideology and participating in stoking it um, and the ugliness of his response to Charlottesville, which which um, we see at the end of the film, felt heavy handed. And maybe this is just a, t- a tale in a moment that requires a heavy hand. But there's a couple moments uh, that reminded me of the Mad Men like dry cleaning bag moments where, you know, our character in the past is like, but America can never, ever elect someone as terrible and bad as this, can they? And everyone in the audience is like, groan, which just didn't feel like a exciting set of ideas or responses to art somehow. This is a criticism that is often leveled against Spike Lee and often, I think, legitimately that, you know, just that he wields a very heavy hammer. It's He, he does not bother right. cloaking right. it sometimes in, you know, either subtlety or allegory or, or misdirection or whatever. Right. I mean, but the question is, you know, given the times and the and the bluntness and starkness of the political reality is a blunt weapon, What's necessary, and I'm I'm on the fence with that one. I mean, I, I, an objection I have to Spike Lee, um, whose work, of course, I uh, generally admire. I mean, you know, his achievements are are unparalleled, right? And but um, is is the tendency for people to speak their subtext, especially their racial subtext, they kind of announce their subject position in American society, especially as it relates to their identity, and they do it to someone who occupies a different and very often adversarial one, and then they kind of speak their prejudices about one another to each other. Um, and then that 
that that method of didactic collage, I wasn't always with it, Dana, but I felt I feel I felt battered walking into the movie by reality, and maybe there was some homeopathy to getting battered by the movie um, with reality waiting to greet me when I walked back uh, outside. The one thing I will say is that I, the, what bothered, not bothered, what disappointed me most about the movie is that the conventional movie at its heart is so close to being gripping and a complete success, in part because of the performances I think are, are truly wonderful, uh, drivers being uh, uh, singled out, and, and he should be. But I also think John David Washington who's in almost every shot of the film is, well, he's in a lot of the film, I guess, when Driver is undercover, he's not. But he's he's got this quiet, anchored, mesmerizing presence, which I think transcends some of the lines that he's been given. Steve, it's worth noting that John David Washington is Denzel Washington's son. And I think some of that um, that restraint and uh, that very contained performance that you see in him echoes back to his dad a little bit. And it's really to his credit in this movie, because his character, as we have been saying, is a bit underwritten. We don't always know what his motivations or his you know emotional responses are. But it really goes with the style of that actor who seems to be kind of holding something close to his vest all the time. I have a I have a beef. It's a beef with what Hollywood is working with a lot now, which is nonfiction source material from which it seems like they take the tiniest strand or premise, which is rooted in truth, and then extend it into what amounts to an almost entirely fictional film. I saw this movie with my daughter who had just finished reading the, a memoir by the real life Ron Stallworth, and she said, "Look, no, I mean, very little of what happens in this movie is in that book." Um, and I, I, to me, I mean, I've I've tried this out before on the show, and forgive me if it's getting tiresome, but it, it, to me, it's the equivalent of sitting next to a dinner party guest who spins out or you know sits, says this remarkable thing happened to me the other day, spins out an incredible tale. You're absolutely mesmerized, and at the end of it, says, "Actually, it didn't really happen." What what is that experience, right? I mean. Do you what what credit does that person deserve? Like the story's premised on the amazing fact that it actually was fact, that it actually happened. And then you have to suddenly evaluate it as a work of fiction, even though it received all of the great inflation for being amazing because it was true. And I I I'm a little my patience is worn a little thin by that. I would tell people to go see this movie, though, because in the in the final analysis, it's devastating. Well, I think there's two ways to think about that question. I mean, one is how does being based on underlying source material help the movie get made? And then two is does being based on an underlying quote unquote true story affect the way we perceive or read the film? And the first question strikes me as one about the economics of Hollywood at the present moment and a little bit neither here nor there. The second one, Mm -hmm. whether the movie is trading on the fact of being quote unquote real seems like the more um, right. Well, because you're alleviating yourself of the burden of telling a beautifully crafted or elegantly crafted story, which is the burden of, of fiction, right? Um, and uh, and 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 yet, then essentially creating a fictional film or a largely fictional film without the elegance, you know. But but the way you get away with it is people are like, "Holy shit! I can't believe a black guy went undercover, uh, you know, as a Klansman," which which did happen, right? The premise of the movie turns out to be completely true. But um, anyway, we don't need to get stuck on this. I mean, I, the more important thing to me is by the end of it, Dana, I did feel I felt walloped in a um, I don't know, in sort of a salutary way. Yeah, I'm raising various quibbles here, but I should say that I think people should go see this movie, like even if it's more lapel grabby than uh, feels elegant to me. I think the question of whether um, 
elegance of uh, allegorical persuasion is the the right question for the moment. It seems like a completely fair one. And the combination of the performances and the the still freshness of Spike Lee's way of putting a story together make it totally worth people's time, I think. Well, in all our talk about lapel grabbing and hammer wielding, we haven't mentioned that this movie's very funny for the most part. There are lots of laughs in it. There's lots of great music. There's a beautiful dance sequence. There's tons of kind of 70s soul period music that's fun to listen to. So there's lots of pleasure, visual pleasure and auditory pleasure, along with the, uh, the some sometimes heavy politicking. Mm. All right. Well, the segment wouldn't be complete without some kind of a shout out to Topher Grace as David Duke, who I think brought a lot of uh, kind of insect-like vacuity to the role. But uh, anyway, okay, Black Klansman, I think we all sort of agree, thumbs up in terms of going to see it, uh, but then have uh, interestingly equivocal feelings while you're there. Um, Okay, moving on. All right. Before we go any further, I'm going to guess we have some business. Julia, what do you what do you have there? Uh, we certainly do, Steve. Uh, today in our Slate Plus segment, we will be having a knockdown drag out fight about whether The New Yorker was right or wrong to first invite Steve Bannon to its Ideas Festival and then disinvite him. Uh, and in the process, Steve and I will have a set to uh, unprecedented since 1989. So step right up, folks. That'll be in Slate Plus today. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest and hear which of us compared the other to the Ebola virus, go to <laughs> slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. All right, well, Julia, before we dig into our second segment, I do have a, a question for you. Um, does your construction paper come pre-glittered? <laughs> or do you glitter, do you glitter, your, glitter it yourself? Uh, I have never glittered my own construction paper, but I would relish the opportunity to do so. <laughs> okay. All right. So never seen Gone with the Wind, never glittered your own construction paper. Okay. You know, a po- kind of portrait emerges. But Can I just pipe up and say that as a resident of a house with a 12-year-old girl in it, I don't need to glitter anything. Everything is already covered in glitter. In fact, I hope it's not too personal a revelation to say that the other day I went in the bathroom and for some reason the toilet seat was lightly covered in purple <laughs> glitter. I asked no questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I, I've raised two daughters. I'm still like Q-tipping it out of my ear canal. I mean, that, that is this so insidious. Um, uh, however, this is not improbably. This is not a segment about glitter. Making it is a, a sort of answer show to the massive hit Great British Bake Off. In this instance, uh, it's an American show, and the muse is Etsy. People working with their own hands. There's a kind of old timey nostalgia, a shop craft is soul craft vibe, maybe. Uh, As driven home by the co-host Nick Offerman, who manages at once to be a man's man and a deconstruction of the type, he's playing uh, off of the other co-host, Amy Poehler, the hapless, klutzy, but also arch-urban sophisticate. Uh, They're very, very charming together, I will say. And they preside together over felt-making and decoupage, whatever those are. Let's listen to a clip. What do heirlooms mean to you? This is an heirloom challenge. So, (laughs) shouldn't be emotional, but it's emotional. My family and I parted ways. There is no heirloom. My parents are not happy with a gay son. Everybody loses people. But when I told my parents I was gay, they kind of cut off all connection to me. 
One day, I got a black funeral wreath at my office that said, in memory of our dead son. But you know what? This is why crafting is so, Absolutely. so special. Because all of this, you are pouring into <laughs> through your hands. Like, this is, this is the joy of crafting. This, this is, is what it's all about. This is a cheaper version of therapy. Yeah, it <laughs> And it's very satisfying. Julia, I'm, I'm really glad. I didn't know we were going to start with that clip. I'm really glad that that's what uh, producer Ben selected. I thought that was an extremely affecting, like really genuinely affecting moment in the show. Uh, this, one's, this is, to my mind, this is sort of a different kind of show. Like the hosts are celebrities, but they're just like us. So it's not about uh, the contestants are not people who aspire to be in show business that we can tell. Uh, the loser isn't exiled in maximally humiliating fashion. The, there was a glass of rosé on the porch uh, after one got dinged. Uh, what'd you make of this? So somehow we managed to like not talk about the Great British, British Bake Off on this show ever. I don't know why. We just missed it. It was dumb. And now that I've watched this show and read 20 articles suggesting it's an homage to the Great British Bake Off, I wish we'd watched that too. Like the spirit of this show is very distinctive. The format of the show, uh, you know, making stuff competition show is dime a dozen. We've watched and talked about a jillion of them. We've talked about Project Runway. We've talked about the the art show, you know, like the shtick is old at this point. But somehow the spirit of this show feels really distinctive and purposeful and modern uh, in that it is kind and human and collaborative and good, like just G-O-O-D. I wish I could say that that feels modern in the sense that like contemporary life felt at all like this show. Okay, maybe not modern, but like a response to to the currents of that we see in in the world right now like it, the the fact that you could i mean the other thing that's old about this is the idea of makers right they they have a joke tagline when the when each challenge starts where they say make it <laughs> as opposed to you know pick up your scissors or whatever the heck the other catchphrases are they're they're kind of rhymed to keep out the conceits but the whole maker movement and crafting and etsy and people working with their hands and um you know, purposeful encounters with yarn as a way to counter the increasing digitization of our lives. Like, that's also old, right? Like, that's like a decade old that we've been, that's, there have been maker fairs or whatever, probably longer. Um, so it's these two old forms. It's an old form and an old subject. And yet somehow the, just the kindness of it feels, mm-hmm. um, right. feels distinctive and like a response to the modern moment. You're correct that kindness is not modern or increasingly prevalent <laughs> if only if only nick and amy were sort of presiding over our daily lives as they preside over this show i mean to me it's nick and amy that make it it definitely is a kind format and the contestants are all interesting sweet people with great stories you don't want any of them to get kicked off the show and you're sad when anyone does so there's no villains but in that sense it's a little bit like nailed it the the cooking show for people who can't cook that we we, we talked about recently still though i think I like this better and would be more likely to stick with it. And I think it really is because of Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler, who their friendship
friendship is really obvious on screen. Their unscripted banter feels truly unscripted and truly funny. I mean, they're two comedians who I'm sure both have a background in in improv. And uh, and so these moments that there's just a camera sitting on them and they're doing ridiculous things like pun offs where the puns have to be words about <laughs> creativity and making stuff or I don't know, just utterly silly riffs on nothing at all are actually genuinely funny and they don't feel like stilted banter. And that's a huge part of the enjoyment of the show. Yeah, I totally agree. And at the heart of the show is kind of an anti-pun, which is that making it ordinarily or idiomatically means, you know, making it in the world, like making it as a singer making it as a, you know, whatever, dancer. And uh, and when they say make it, they really mean something kind of uh, posed, to, you know, against that. Uh, and um, th- I totally agree with you, Dana, that the show uh, lives and dies on the charms of those two. They're, they're both people that you want to be around for their immense uh, ease and um, sense of humor and their kind of read the phone book quality funny, right? They can make anything funny they can you're sort of waiting for a joke to fall incredibly flat in order to get more nick offerman deadpan or you know amy poehler's just i mean she's just as as deft as anyone comes working with whatever material so it's a total delight but let's not bury the lead i didn't know going into the show that ultra supreme friend of the program an usfop a rare rare usfop simon dunan is one of the two sort of celebrity industry insider uh, judges. And it takes him a little while, I think, to find his stride. To his credit, he's not at first a total natural in front of a TV camera necessarily. But he lands a couple of zingers, and all of a sudden his personality is integral to the show. And and there is almost no one I love talking to more. Maybe nobody. I love talking to more and being around more than than Simon. I mean, I Simon is wonderful as a judge. And, and one of the things I love about this show, it's so kind. There's birds chirping everywhere and fluttering around Amy Poehler's head. And there's a moment in the middle of the first episode where she says, oh, I just wish we didn't have to send anybody home. And in the world of the show, it seems possible that they might just like all sit around and make crafts and never eliminate anybody <laughs> and then just have a picnic at the end of episode six. The game six. show of my dreams. No competition. Um, and the fact that they could, that they proceed with the elimination despite all of this kindness, the fact that that they're that the stakes that they keep the stakes in and that they are kind in the face of the stakes and that they recognize that um you know loss happens and parting ways happens and um you know that it's really just a a time on a tv show and it's not the end of the world but it is also sad like that there's room in the show for loss and failure makes it much better i think than it would be if uh, if it were all just fairy tales and cupcakes and glitter. And I really love, I mean, having worked with Simon for years and been delighted to speak with him on this show and also editing, editing him, I feel like you can tell when a when a um, elaborate Simon Dunan metaphor is a compliment and when it is a understated, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps so imperceptible true. to the recipient, diss. And, and watching those unspool is... Uh, quite fun. And then also watching Amy Poehler and the government respond to them is also fun. Just to cite one of those, I love when he looks at a lamp that one contestant made and says, I feel like Goldie Hawn opened a health food restaurant in 1965. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> which I believe was a diss, but I'm not entirely sure. But if people enjoy listening to Simon on this show, I mean, one thing I have to recommend is, of course, via audio, you can't see the incredible visuals of Simon Doonan. And there's just no one who wears a Liberty Print shirt, a fun, bright tie, oh, and a perfectly yeah. tailored velvet jacket like Simon Doonan. So it's fun just to watch it for his amazing looks. Yeah. And we should also mention the other judge, Dana Isom Johnson, who is a trend spotter at Etsy. And I do, you know, they both bring in real design expertise and and in Simon's uh, case, certainly experience with actually making crazy stuff with your hands for Barney's shop windows. And um, it's very fun to watch what they don't respond to. Like, they don't respond to things that are basic, uh, and their their definition of what's basic is a little bit different. I think Simon is looking for things that are a little more outre and original, um, and uh, Dana seems more like she's looking for what's the next trend as opposed to the last trend. She's but, really into texture. She's always saying, why isn't there more texture on this surface? Yeah. I mean, there's one, one uh, enterprising contestant makes a like perfectly nice circus tent fort, um, and just watching Simon be like, I can't believe how boring this is, <laughs> as the understatement of his whatever kind of polite comment he makes about it is also part yeah, of the Yeah, Simon fun. wants an edge. He makes it clear that he doesn't want things to be too wholesome and perky. I have to also just shout out, because we're talking about just the looks and the fun, different feel of the show, that I love what Amy Poehler wears in it. It's so adorable. She's dressed like a, a grown-up toddler, basically, the entire time. She wears different shades of overalls. And then she always wears a shirt that has some sort of applique embroidery on the collar. She looks. She, she basically looks like like a four-year-old in Jimbery overalls. And I just love that she is completely rejecting either the glam or I'm so original or any other kind of look. She's just she's just chosen her kind of toddler chic and gone with it. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, can I throw something out here and just get your reaction to it? Which is, isn't sort of the old model uh, of celebrity, uh, you know, someone who can seem like your friend on the surface, but who might very well be a viper underneath. And now there's this kind of new mode of sort of surface insincerity beneath which there's there's kind of a wink that lets you know this broad caricaturing insincerity which is imitating sincerity is actually a form of sincerity and like the last russian egg to be revealed is a good egg like you know i mean i, I i'm trying to understand the performativity the good guy good gal performativity of these two people who i couldn't dig more but i there's a little something uh, slant about it. It's not just that they're like friendly, good, decent people. That's what the contestants are, right? But these guys are pros. I mean, am I, Julia, picking up on something or am I overthinking it? Well, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think our, look, we're living in a country with a reality TV star as president, right? And our level of sophistication and our level of ability to read the underlying text of a reality show has grown, maybe not fast or far enough to present to prevent us from the national outcome we have currently arrived at. But I think the stuff that's getting made right now is I, there's a bit of a like sophistication arms race between the people who are who are putting personalities in the context of quote unquote reality onto our television and the consumers who are watching the shows. And so the notion that what would find success right now and feel appealing right now um is our shows like Nailed It and Making It that are kind of winking at the conventions of the form seem to allow a certain kind of messy humanity to escape from behind the packaged types of humanity that are more typically presented on like a bachelor or bachelorette from what I understand. Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, 
that feels like a natural evolution and that, um, you know, that that people who are skilled in improv, which is this practice of showing your real human thinking on your feet self as part of a performance would be good in this format seems like a, an inspired move and a move of Amy Poehler's, right? She's the executive producer of the show. It seems like it's her brainchild. Can I say my one critique of the show? And it's basically my critique of every single reality competition show and probably every reality show if I watch them. I think it's too long. I think it should be half an hour long instead of 48 minutes or however. It's long and it's an NBC show and it's long enough to be an hour with commercials. And I just think it has it feels a little bit padded at that length. I might rather see them do one competition rather than two or cut out some of the making montages or just generally condense it down. I will say, though, to its credit, and maybe this has fallen out of favor, it doesn't do the thing that's in a lot of other the shows where of those 40 minutes that fit into an hour, 10 minutes are clips previewing the things that are going to happen after the commercial break, <laughs> oh, right? Like they don't catch. say like, yeah, and next, like, will Kim's turtle have a body? <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And then like after the break, they're like, Kim, has your turtle coming? And he's like, doesn't have a body. And then boom, you know, like the, the, the kind of stutter step repetition of the, like, it's a little cleaner than that. Yeah, it's nicely paced. I mean, it, it flows by perfectly fine, but it feels like it's a light half hour comedy format show rather rather than a one hour. Yes. I was shocked to find its minutes still unfurling when I reached 22. Yeah, there's, there's spillage. I agree. All right. We, we, well, we all liked it. It'd be curious to know what our listeners think of it. Uh, Facebook.com slash culture fest. The show's making it. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. All right, moving on. The National Museum in Rio de Janeiro has burned to the ground, taking its believed as many as 20 million relics of one kind or another with it to the ground. The museum itself was 200 years old, but that doesn't really convey the extent of this damage. It had artifacts going back to the dinosaur era, to dinosaur bones, up through Greco-Roman artifacts. Uh, 200 years of work research and knowledge were lost, as Brazil's uh, president has said. Um, This is, I understand it, is lost to Brazil, but also to Latin America, the Americas, and uh, to the world. Um, To help us get our heads around it, which I don't think is possible, but to help us start, we're joined by Mauricio Santoro. He is the head of the Department of International Relations at the State University of Rio. Uh, Mauricio, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's really a very sad week for us in Brazil. But I think that it's important to share with the American audience what happened here, why it's important, not just to Brazil, but also to many other countries. Uh, well, yes, exactly. I, I, I think that's where we ought to begin, too, is just, conv- I mean, I've heard news reports and I'm starting to comprehend a little bit precisely what this museum meant both to Brazil, but also to the history and deep history of the Americas. So place it in context for us what this loss means. Sure. Well, the National Museum was the Brazilian equivalent of the Louvre, of the Metropolitan, of the British Museum. And uh, I know that it may sound something that is very patriotic, but let me give you some numbers to show how it was so important. Uh, The National Museum had 20 million artifacts in its collections. So just to make a comparison, the British Museum, which is, of course, an excellent museum, has 80 million. So you can see the size of the collection. And uh, the building itself was very important for Brazilians. It was our old royal and imperial palace. 
It was the place of the Declaration of Independence of Brazil was signed. So to put it in an American perspective, it was more or less like if your Independence Hall and some of the Smithsonian Museums of Washington were destroyed at the same time. Mauricio, as far as what was included in the collections, I mean, we've heard that there were a lot of anthropological artifacts. I know there was a skull that was the oldest hominid that has been found in, in Latin America. Is that right? Or maybe in the whole Western Hemisphere? It's right. It's Luzia. It was uh, actually a household name in Brazil because it was a very important symbol of uh, our history, of our culture. And it was a, a skull that survived thousands of years in many difficult situations, and that probably it was destroyed. It's still something controversial because uh, the firemen found a skull that may be the skull of Luzia, but they are still trying to find out. That's horrible. And then, then, then another I just saw this morning reading some more reports of things that have been lost. And this is really unbelievable because you realize that this museum was also a repository of non-physical artifacts that are really important to, to human knowledge. So the whole linguistics wing of the museum, which had all these recordings of indigenous languages that are no longer spoken, was also destroyed. Can you talk about that at all? Do you know about the, the linguistics material in the museum? Sure, sure, I know. Actually, the museum is very close to my university, and I could see the museum from my office window. So it's it's something very personal. And uh, it was usually the first museums that the people in Rio visit when they were children, because they went there with the school or, or with their families. So it, uh, the feeling is that it's not just that we lost something very important to our culture, but also a part of our childhood is gone because of the fire. So it's very personal for many Brazilians what happened this week. But the, the, the collection of the museum was really amazing. And perhaps the most important one was the anthropology section about the indigenous peoples of Brazil, of Latin America, and also about many African peoples. And there were many recordings of ancient indigenous languages of Brazil Language that don't exist anymore because everybody uh, who spoke that language is dead. So it was the last recording. And many uh, artifacts collected by anthropologists from different countries that traveled around Brazil in the 19th century, in the 20th century. So it's like uh, if something like the, the collection of the the Museum of Natural History in New York was destroyed by a fire. It's this kind of loss that we are discussing in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about the political and economic situation in Brazil and how it may have contributed to this incident? Sure. Well, uh, Brazil is facing a very severe economic crisis for the last uh, three or four years. And uh, we're going through an, uh, an austerity program that it's very controversial, that's creating all sorts of political conflicts in the country. And uh, we are also living, uh, as in many other countries, a moment of ideological polarization between right and left. The national government is conservative, right wing, and the federal university, uh, who was responsible for the management of the museum, uh, is basically a left wing institution. So we are facing a blaming game between right and left about uh, who is responsible for this tragedy. Because the National Museum was not receiving enough money from the federal government, so the university is blaming the government, the Ministry of Culture. 
And the government and the, the conservative public opinion uh, are blaming the university because they think the university should have done more to take care of the museum. But this neglect with the National Museum is not something that started now with the austerity. Uh, it's a problem that came from a long time ago. For example, the last president of Brazil who visited the museum uh, was Juscelino Kubitschek, who left power in 1961. <laughs> so we had the anniversary of the 200 years of the museum in May, and not one single minister cared to visit the museum for the ceremony. So it's, it, it was a popular museum, it was important for the population of Brazil, for the population of Rio de Janeiro, but the authorities really didn't care about it. And during the Olympics, during the World Cup, there were those giant projects of infrastructure, of new museums, of new cultural institutions. And the general feeling right now is that we were so busy building new things that we failed to care for the ones that already existed, for the ones that were very important to our history, to our culture, to our traditions. Um Mauricio, as someone who visited the Natural History Museum in New York City as a kid very often, and, and for whom that museum really formed my sense of what the relationship of us to the natural world was as mediated by scientific knowledge, uh, I hear what you're saying about this as a, as a deeply emotional loss, that something about the collective childhood of Brazil has, in effect, been wiped out. Um, there's another dimension too, right, which is that the, the sheer amount of intellectual property that's been raised to the ground here because of the kinds of research that went on under the auspices of this um, museum, that's another enormous loss. Uh, the, the amount of lab work, the number of papers, um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the, the museum is also a very important uh, research and scientific institution. Uh, it's not just uh, a museum, a collection of artifacts. It's also a research center. And it's the home of the most important school of anthropology in Brazil. It's a, a very respected graduate school of anthropology. And there were many touching pictures of the fire of the scientists, of the researchers, leaving the building, running away, carrying in their arms... Uh, their work, their research, the artifacts that they were researching, uh, important pieces of the collection. And for everybody who works with education, with science, with research, those images, they are heartbreaking. It's really something that you want to cry if you, if you look to the pictures. Not just because it's very sad, but also because of the dedication, because of the passion that uh, the scientists there have for the work. And uh, because of the austerity policies, the last years have been very hard for scientists in Brazil. The current budget of science in this country is about half of what it used to be in the beginning of the decade. So it has been very difficult uh, for the students to go to graduate school or for many professors to conduct research. And then we have a tragedy like that. It's a very powerful symbol of all the bad things that are happening right now. And uh, it, it was especially important uh, research going on in, in the museum about uh, indigenous peoples in Brazil. 
For example, uh, the anthropologists there and in all, at the other universities, they are changing our perception of the in traditional indigenous culture of Brazil before the arrival of the Europeans, of the Portuguese settlers. And they are showing how these cultures are much more sophisticated, complex, than we use it to think about them. So uh, we are losing not just our past, but also uh, an important, important tools to understand how we became the country that we are today and to think about our future, to think about public policy, about the indigenous peoples and so on. Do you have some sense yet of what's next, of what what the museum uh, will be able to preserve, what they'll focus on, whether they'll be able to rebuild, whether the attention will uh, help direct some resources toward what remains? Well, uh, the first news that we have is that about 90% of the collection of the museum was destroyed. So almost everything. It was really... Uh, a terrible tragedy, the worst in the history of Brazilian science. But the authorities are talking about money to rebuild the building, to rebuild the palace, uh, which was uh, a very important historical building for Brazil. Uh, to use a, a comparison with the United Kingdom, it was like uh, the combination of the British Museum and Buckingham Palace together the same building. So, of course, that it's important to, to rebuild the policy. It is something that uh, is relevant for our history. But the policy was not the most important thing in the museum. The most important thing was the collection, where the artifacts, and, and that is lost forever. But there is a very interesting initiative from the students of one of the universities here in Rio, uh, of the course of museology, that they are asking people to send to them photographs of them in the museum because the idea is to recreate in a virtual experience in a website at least the memories that people have about the museum for example almost every kid in Rio has a picture of himself at the museum with the dinosaurs with the Egyptian mummies I mean it, it's part of our childhood it's part of our Memories when we were kids and we were discovering all this history and tradition. So it's important to preserve that. But my personal opinion is that, uh, okay, let's rebuild the museum, let's rebuild the palace. But somehow we must also preserve the memory of the fire. We must preserve the memory of the tragedy in order to not repeat it in the future. I'm thinking about something more or less like the German parliament in Berlin. If you go to the parliament, you can see the old parliament of the 20th century before it was destroyed by the war, before it was destroyed by the, the, the political extremism of the time. And I think that we must somehow do something like that in Brazil, to have the memory of our tragedy, of our neglect about the museum. Um, well, uh, Mauricio, I'm... Uh, heartbroken that this was the occasion uh, upon which we had an opportunity to talk to you. But thank you very much for coming on the show and putting this into perspective. I really, We really appreciate it. No, thank you for the invitation. I think it's very important for people outside Brazil to understand why it, it was a tragedy, not just for us in Brazil, but for everybody who cares about science, who cares about education uh, around the world. 
All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dan. All right, since we talked today about crafting and the importance of making things with your hands, etc., I'm going to endorse a recipe, just a really simple, delicious recipe that was made for me last night by my daughter, who's only 12 and a half and usually bakes rather than cooks, is not hugely experienced in cooking, but really wanted to make us dinner. And so we went online and tried to look for a recipe that was something that she could reasonably accomplish in a day. And we decided to make ratatouille, uh, in part because of our love for the Pixar movie of the same name, but just because it seemed like a, a tasty vegetarian summer meal. And there were all these recipes online that were too complicated and involved bechamel sauce and various stages, and they just seemed like they would be too big of a messy deal. But we ended up finding one on Epicurious. It's actually an old uh, gourmet magazine recipe from 20 years ago or something. And uh, and it's super simple and delicious. I, I could not recommend this recipe more highly. It's a one-pot meal, so you just get a skillet, put some onions and garlic in it, saute them, and then one by one you add these various vegetables, stuff that goes in ratatouille, zucchini, eggplant, peppers, etc. And it all simmers together into this great caramelized mass, and it's totally delicious. So we will put a link to the Epicurious recipe um, for ratatouille, but I have one uh, change to it, or rather addition to it, which is that, I'm sure you guys know this, but when you make eggplant, you know how eggplant can absorb liquid and become like a gross spongy material, which is why many people hate eggplant. So of course, you have to salt eggplant and do this whole thing with it where you kind of sweat it for an hour in some salt and then rinse the salt off. And then you've got nice reduced eggplant that doesn't absorb oil and other liquids and comes out delicious. So um, the Epicurious recipe does not include this fact. And I was proud to know as somebody who's not a huge cook myself, wait, we should probably salt this eggplant. And you can look up how to do that on Google, but it's basically just that. Soak it with some salt for an hour and then rinse it out. And uh, and with that one exception, this is to me the perfect ratatouille recipe. And within an hour, you can have this this great summer meal. Um, so yeah, ratatouille on Epicurious is my endorsement for the God, week. That's wonderful. So yes, always salt your eggplant um, and then glitter it. That's always the way. <laughs> or take my approach and never cook with eggplant. And then you never have to worry about <laughs> but it. But then you don't oh. get to eat one of, one of the world's great vegetables. Oh my Unfairly gosh, maligned exactly because right. of its frequent sponginess. I'm happy for someone uh, else to turn it into a nice baba ganoush for me. Let I, your 12-year-old do it. And that was another sweet thing about last night was like, whatever we did right, we were just high-fiving. Like, whatever we did, we did something right because now we have a kid who just made us a delicious ratatouille. All right. In seven years, I'll start uh, eating eggplant when my, when my children reach eggplant cooking age. I have to point out this is third data point in the course of one show. Never seen Gone with the Wind doesn't pre-glitter and leaves uh, eggplant prep to others. That's a (laughs) portrait of a monster. All right. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. I want to endorse a movie that you can see on Netflix called Landline. Landline is the second feature film directed by Julian Robespierre. Uh, who directed the film Obvious Child, which we saw and loved, uh, starring Jenny Slate and about abortion. This movie also stars Jenny Slate and a host of other wonderful actors, including Edie Falco, John Turturro. Um, Is Jay Duplass a wonderful actor? I don't know, but he's in it. And he's pretty good in it, actually, I think. (laughs) Sorry, that's not fair to Jay Duplass. (laughs) I love the Duplass brothers and their output, and I actually think it's Mark's acting that I find... um, stilted in a sometimes effective way and Jay's is good. So never mind. I withdraw my comments about Mr. Duplass. But anyway, um, I think it's somewhat understandable that this movie didn't garner the same attention as Obvious Child. It's not about an electrifying third rail of American life and culture like abortion. It's about two semi-grown sisters trying to deal with being truly grown and the dissolution of their parents' relationship and what it means to create a new family for yourself. 
um, and still connect with the one you grew up in. And it's it's a little bit quieter and a little bit uh, more of a meandering ensemble piece, but it's a delightful 90 minutes on Netflix. And if you are looking for something uh, skillful and lovely to watch, I would recommend it. Uh, the performances are great. The writing is great. It takes place in a time when you would still use a landline. And so it has wonderful kind of, I think, mid-90s costumes in it. And I recommend it. Again, to the topic of crafting that we keep returning to, it feels like a handmade object, that movie. It's something I really like about it. It feels like something that was built by a bunch of people who all had the same kind of idea in mind of the very modest construction they wanted to build. And it, it works really, really well. And then because I'm just turning into Steve in my old age as I near 40, uh, I have one addition to my endorsement. And it's also a bit of an anti-endorsement. Uh, I had a bonfire with my children on Sunday night. We roasted s'mores over this fire for the second time this summer. And for the second time, I was confronted with a bag of marshmallows and ripped it open only to be disappointed by what modern grotesquerie? Do either of you know the answer to this question? Stale marshmallows? <laughs> no. Steve? P pantry moths? No. The jumbo marshmallow. <laughs> there is this supersizing of the marshmallow that is happening so that now it seems that the default, at least the last two times I've been at a s'more type event, uh, is to procure only jumbo marshmallows rather than regular size marshmallows. But the jumbo marshmallow seems to be like contain four cubic Marsh regular marshmallows within it. It is too much marshmallow. When you roast it, even if you coat the exterior a perfect golden brown without setting it afire, as is my want, the inside is like a hard, cold, uh, pure marshmallow. It doesn't even surface ratio problem. Yeah, and then if you try to stack it perfectly on a half a Nabisco graham cracker sandwich with three little blobs of Hershey's, as you must. It's like too much freaking marshmallow and it's overflowing the side. Don't stop supersizing the marshmallows. Only buy regular marshmallows. Jumbo marshmallows are for the birds. That is my public service announcement for the day. Okay, I have two endorsements this week. The uh, This show's been going on about 10 years. It's coincided with the um, hyping of Hudson, New York, the very small city uh, upon whose outskirts I live. Um, Hudson doesn't always live up to the hype. There's a great restaurant just south of it called Gaskins that I would pound the table on. There's a great restaurant in it called Little Debs. I would pound the table on Little Debs. I have a third installment, I believe, to the north of Hudson. There's a little town, little down on the mouth town uh, uh, called the little town that could called Philmont. And it has an, uh, a new joint in it called Vanderbilt Lakeside. And I, I am really, I am pounding the table on this. It's an old guest house that a couple of Brooks, uh, Brooklyn types have taken over. And their uh, taste is completely unerring in everything. Decor, vibe, feng shui, uh, menu, uh, food prep, uh, service, uh, the bar scene, uh, and the guest rooms. We toured some of the guest rooms. And it is, in fact, you would never know this. And I've driven through Philmont now for 20 years, and I never knew there was a lake in it. It's kind of hidden up on this little hillside behind the Vanderbilt uh, uh, lakeside uh, house. I, if you're Hudson is routinely booked up. It's very hard sometimes to find a room there. If you are a person bringing a car with you to this area, I highly recommend you call these guys. They're just starting out. I do not think they are book solid. And uh, if you can't get a room, you should definitely go and eat there. I really mean at the back porch overlooking the um, 
lake is wonderful. You could bring a kayak and go for a little ride uh, beforehand. I thought this place was truly special. I really mean it. And um, I hope you go. And if you do, you have to tell me about it. That's the deal. Very quickly, uh, I think the intelligent response to the passing of John McCain was to have intelligently divided feelings about his legacy uh, as both a maverick and yet someone who, when the chips were really down, maybe didn't go against his party as much as he might have. There is a very thoughtful and very nuanced uh, take on the life and death of John McCain by George Blaustein, whose work I've recommended before. It's on N plus one. Let me get the title for you. It's called My Fellow Prisoners. And I just want to give you what I think is this, the, the kind of central insight from the piece because it's very brilliant, which is it's not only that McCain uh, was taken prisoner for those years. I mean, I think it was about five years um, in Hanoi. It's um, it's what those five years were for everyone else uh, experiencing American history in real time. I mean, he essentially missed that moment when the fissure opened up in American society that's never quite healed. Uh, he missed the late 60s and the early 70s. And um, Blastin spins out this conceit, which is that having missed that, he's been perennially exempted from the fissure. And we've all turned to him collectively like Joe DiMaggio in the Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, turning our lonely, our fissured, our broken eyes and broken psyches to John McCain to heal us over and over and over again. And I think the piece gets at the pathos of that. I mean, just no single human being could possibly have enacted that uh, gesture of healing on our behalf. Uh, and but it but it's very honest about um, what he did do, what he didn't do, what his relationship to his own myth was, um, but uh, also how much we need someone who was exempted from who we are and how we got to be who we are um, in in a nearly total way to intercede on our behalf. And I thought in that way, it's I think is a very special essay. So it's by George Blaustein. It's in N plus one. It is available on the web, and it is called My Fellow Prisoners. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. Ha- Let's see if you can go for a hat trick of kayak mentioning endorsements next week, Steve. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I will do. I'll find a way to do it. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. It's Facebook dot com slash culture fest we also have a twitter feed it's at slate cult fest we have a producer it's benjamin frisch uh big ups to him for the uh extra yards he went uh this week uh, our first week in bennington my first week in bennington and of course our production assistant alex Barish. thanks to both of you and for dana stevens and julia turner i'm Stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon